Hi everybody. Today we're going to be speaking with Avi Weisenberg. Avi Weisenberg is a is an expert in being a first-time uh, salesperson for a new startup and also to build and lead teams. Uh, I've crossed paths with him a few times in my career and I really uh, look up to him uh, and have he has a lot to learn and a lot to teach to all of us. So today we're going to be speaking about the difference to selling to enterprises and SMBs speaking about how managers should be dividing their time, tips for founders on how to get your first sales, and many, many more things. I wanted to take this time to also share with you that at Startup Sales, we're helping a lot of early stage founders build their sales processes and train their teams. So if this is something that you need help with and you would like to speak with us, feel free to reach out to us at startupsales.io or email me directly at adam at startupsales.io. It's going to be a great episode today with Avi. I hope you learn a lot and take a lot from this. Uh, it's going to be terrific. Startup Sales is a podcast about what it's really like to get a business off the ground. We talk with founders, CEOs, and sales VPs from the high-tech market. You'll learn how to build and scale a sales team. You'll also hear about the growth challenges and tough decisions from others who have had both successes and failures. And now, your host of the Startup Sales Podcast, Adam Springer. Great, Avi, thanks for joining us today. Great, thank thank you for having me, Adam. I I love the fire you got in the background. It's uh... <laughs> listen, it's still it's still the height of winter, and uh, you got to make sure you keep as many logs in the fire as possible, right? Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> kind of goes it goes with sale. Keep 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 the fire going. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Keep the pipeline full. Good, um, Avi. Uh, you've you've got quite the experience. You you started at Oracle, and then you kind of went into the startup early stage startup realm and then into like a, I don't know if you could call like similar web a, a startup anymore, but into a big unicorn uh, from there. Your background, I want to jump into straight from Oracle and that you moved into startup. Was that a hard move and how did you make it? Um, it came at the same time of actually moving to Israel. So it was full of a life change at the time anyway. And I think when you go through that type of change from a corporate into a tiny startup and I mean really when I when I joined Clicktail there were 11 people we were in some back office uh, in Ramat Gan it was it was it was incredibly uh, different to the world of Oracle I didn't really know what I was getting myself into I mean to the extent that I turned up for my first interview in the height of the Israeli spring uh, in a pinstripe suit, pouring with sweat, um, and suddenly I'm in front of this co-founder, you know, a founder and a VP of sales who were in like torn jeans and you know sleeveless shirt and everything like that, and I didn't really know what I was getting myself into, and I think it's that that aspect of the agility that you know when you when you move country when you change where you are, you don't quite know what to expect in any case. So that ability to actually um, be adaptable, be agile, take everything as new, um, I think served me very, very well as we went through that. Um, I think 
sales is sales at the end of the day. I think there are massive differences between being somewhere like Oracle and somewhere like Clicktel, especially in those early days. Um, but I think if you know how to sell and you believe in what you're doing and you believe in the product, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be a huge difference. Yeah. What about, you know, as Oracle, you're selling to larger companies with a huge name. How is it to sell? How can you get past that? Uh, I've got no name as a startup. So I think, firstly, I think this has changed massively in the last 10 years. I think when we started at, at Clicktel, SaaS wasn't even well known yet. Um, I was sending out license agreements and people, you know, for, for software as a service, and people were sending me back actual old school license agreements. And I said, guys, this is, this is different. This is a subscription. And they didn't even know what a subscription was, never mind that you didn't have the name behind you. And I think in those days, people were, were absolutely trying to de-risk any type of investment in new technology. But there was already the, the seeds that were founding of companies realizing that to be uh, disruptive to move forward as businesses they need to invest in new technologies and that was already starting to happen today I think it's even more prevalent I was actually at breakfast this morning and I was discussing this aspect that you know for, for seed stage companies it used to be 1 million and and you knew you had traction now it's 5 million and I think it's so much easier to get those first deals because every big company knows that if they don't invest in new technologies and new solutions, um, they're going to get disrupted by someone else. So I actually think not having a name anymore, as long as you have a good solution and good technology and a problem area that you're solving and a good solution, you, you can actually get those deals done today. I think 10 years ago it was harder and we had to spend a huge amount of time de-risking uh, and being credible to the end customer. So there's a huge amount of fear that you would invest in a technology that would bring down your website or increase your load times or really you know, destroy your data or whatever it else was that that fear was there for. And I really think a big part of, of any startup sales guy's job is to bring credibility, to de-risk it, to help bring that comfort level. I think today with the platforms and the infrastructure that's available to startups, whether it be AWS or Azure or things like that, even those questions of like, hey, you're going to ensure we have five nines availability, no one's really asking those questions anymore, especially if it's not a core system. I think that there is a better understanding today on a technology standpoint as well that, hey, if you're, if, if you're Excel management platform, whatever solution it is that you're selling, goes down, okay, it will go down for an hour or whatever it is, and it will affect a bit of productivity, but it's not going to mean the collapse of your company. Obviously, it depends on your startup and it depends on your space, and if you are in that type of space where you know, you're selling a mission-critical system, it is going to be even harder to do that without a name behind you. Yeah. Okay, and so do you, nowadays you say that's changed. Nowadays, have you come uh, across anybody that, that is still with that mindset? I think, I think still companies want to buy from, uh, they want to buy technology that they can be assured of. I don't think you can get away from the standpoint that when you get on a telephone call as a sales guy and you say, hi, I'm, I'm Avi from Oracle, 
you're going to get a quicker answer to the phone call, you're going to get a quicker response, you have credibility from day one. However, there are many, many other ways within the sales process to build credibility. One of them that I know many startups use is to say who they're backed by. So, hey, we're so-and-so, we're backed by XYZ VCs, you know, Sequoia, whoever it is, and that can give you some level of credibility that there are big companies behind you and big money behind you that, that have done their due diligence on your company and want to and have invested in you because they view that this is this is significant and real and there's value to it. The other way to build credibility is to talk about the other companies that you're working with. Okay, so being able to come to that call and go, hey, uh, booking.com, I'm Avi, we've already, I'm from XYZ Startup, but we're already working with Expedia, we're already working with Kayak. Suddenly they're, they're going to approach that conversation in a completely different manner. So yes, your first big uh, label customers are important to give you that credibility and allow you to expand and open those conversations. Because one of the most significant things is when you're going into that sales process is fit, right? No one wants to be fired for buying your startup. You know, in the old days, everyone always used to say, nobody gets fired for buying IBM, okay? Yeah. And no one got fired for buying IBM. Today, if you're, if you're only buying IBM and you don't do anything, you potentially run the risk of being fired. So you have to at least show that you're doing something and that you're progressing the company and that you're, you're expanding innovative, disruptive, and bringing new technologies in. However, you also want to make sure that you're not just taking a shot in the dark and that you're partnering with a company that is going to bring you results. And that credibility, that de-risking of the process to enable someone to actually do something, to move from X to Y is, is incredibly important. Yeah, I find that, um, you know, using the approach of like getting them to fear of missing out, saying your competitors are doing it, this is, they're doing it. I mean, it, it works a lot of times, it depends on your product, but uh, you don't want them to, you don't, you want them to get afraid of like, wow, we're missing a, a good thing. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I think you get that critical mass, and once you get that critical mass, you actually become the standard, and that's, you know, the holy grail. Once you've become the industry standard for doing something or for solving a specific problem in the market, you're, 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 you're already basically in, and it becomes a no-brainer for other companies to invest in it and do it. But I think this is also one of the reasons why people are so afraid of sales guides, uh, <laughs> you know, because because we've learned how to do things like that. And, and I think it's really important that, you know, it's, it's that element of human psychology in a way that kind of edges into sales where we go, listen, we understand you don't want to make a change. You don't want to invest in something. You don't want to take that leap of faith that this is a company that's worth partnering with or buying or doing. And as sales guys, our, our entire business is to make the other side feel comfortable to get it done and to start going out of their comfort zone. And I think that's one of the reasons why sales in SaaS and, and startups in general are, are in a way very misunderstood because I think so many founders um, really have that understanding and that belief that I'm, I'm not trying to sell you something. You know, I've created this brilliant product and this brilliant space and, and I know I've got a solution that's going to help you. So as long as I come to the table in, all, in a genuine manner, in an authentic manner and have that conversation with you about how this product is going to help your company, how we're going to really help you take this forward, then, then there shouldn't be any reason why you don't want to work with me and I don't need these sales tricks, if you will. 
you know, and all these <laughs> yeah. sales tricks are things that people get very, very scared of. And it's not that. It's that salespeople have exactly the same, a good sales guy will have exactly the same belief, but he knows in order to get someone over that hurdle to actually make a purchase, to actually go out of their comfort zone, they need reassurances. And there are different ways of giving those reassurances, whether that's by building a deep relationship, whether it's by proving it out through a proof of concept, whether it's by giving credibility in terms of the other companies that you're working with and giving them that fear of missing out approach, ultimately it will get them to move from point A to point B. And I think that's a very, that's a very important aspect that people don't always realize in terms of what sales guys are doing. Yeah, absolutely. I want to, I want to get into that, but after I want to talk, go back a little bit beforehand, mm -hmm. you, you were talking about uh, name dropping some of the clients that you're already working with. One of the things that I found that a lot of the, a lot of the founders that, that I'm talking with and working with, I have them get uh, design partners, you know, try to, try to approach people when you when you don't have any sales to work with like the Oracle and say, Hey, we want you as a design partner. We want you to help. We want your advice. We want your feedback. And then that way you could actually use their name that, Hey, we're working with Oracle or X, Y, Z. Uh, so that, that way you have the names to drop. Yeah. The, the working with is, 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 is a cute way because it doesn't actually mean they're a customer. It doesn't mean that you have to validate it with. I think most people will see through that, but, but you know, that's where case studies come in. That's where real, references come in that's when you can actually get past that first stage and you've got those customers on board i think on the one hand that gives a customer a really really good negotiation standpoint to say listen if you really are going to partner with me if you're really going to be able to do what you say you're going to do absolutely no problem in being a reference afterwards in helping you and doing the case studies and everything is you need to do but i want a price up front that's going to make this le even less risk for me because yeah. you don't have that yet. On the flip side, the second you do have those customers, and if you've been able to get them on board at a fair price, even better. But the second you get those customers and you start giving them success, and this is where I think sales has massively evolved and changed. Um, you know, in the old days, I was able to go in as an Oracle sales guy, and you could get a $2 million license agreement signed off that was never even deployed. It was what we used to call shelfware, okay? And it was, it was the greatest thing that you could have probably as a company. Ultimately, it, it, you didn't care whether the person deployed it or not because they would pay upfront for the license. And it, if it was used, great. If it wasn't used, it didn't really matter to you as a sales guy. You had done the second that the license agreement was signed off. Now, obviously, as good sales guys, you still wanted to have that relationship and build it and keep going forward and see ultimate success from what you're doing. And that would happen on, on many occasions. However, it wasn't necessarily built into your compensation models or anything like that. Today, in essence, the role has been split with SaaS in that you have the entire customer success organization. So as opposed to in the old days where you had a sales guy and you top-loaded all of these deals into long-term perpetual licenses, today you actually have two parts of the organization. Instead of having a small support maintenance or implementation organization, you have a big customer success organization. And that customer success organization has to be there to make sure that there is true value going through. Now, there are many different ways that organizations will, will build themselves in terms of whether the sales guys will do it, whether it will be land and expand, whether it will be, you know, the, the, the customer success team that will do the upsells, whatever it is, at the end of the day, as a company, you have to build that partnership and success into the model. 
But the second you get that, you get customers that are willing to be references, that are willing to help you expand and build your market going forward. And that's, that's ultimately the holy grail of what we want to do in sales because a good sales guy is trying to build a win-win between the two companies. By the way, the other way around doesn't work particularly well either. If you're investing massively up front and giving value to a customer, but actually you're not being paid well enough for it, they're a really difficult customer and actually you, they're distracting your roadmap and your everything within the organization is being distracted by that customer, that can sometimes be a bad fit for you as an organization, even if they're willing to pay you. So you have to that's make true. sure that there's a good fit and a win-win, uh, and that's the sales jobs guy, sometimes to sell it both internally and externally. And I think that internal sale is very often misunderstood sometimes as well. The internal sale can often be perceived by the company, and I, I found this very much um, when I started at Clicktail. I was their first enterprise sales guy if you will and when we built out the organization there was a clear understanding from those guys that i wasn't just interested in my commission check and i think yeah. this is the bit where SaaS sales guys and startup get a little bit confused and people don't quite understand us because on the one hand you want a sales guy you want sales leaders who are focused on the money at the end of the day it's an incredibly draining and and I believe an incredibly difficult job to be a sales guy because of the rejection, because of the ultimately the demand, the ability to pick up the phone, all of those skills that we need to learn. Ultimately, you want someone who's going to be money driven and they're going to be focused on targets and focused on winning. On the other hand, you have to understand that when they come into that company, they're not just focused on their own commission check. When they're trying to sell internally, and what do I mean by the internal sale? If a customer comes and says, listen, I, I can't deploy this product unless you have this integration or that integration or this piece or that feature, whatever it is. And the sales guys comes in banging down product's door, banging down the CTO's door and say, hey, you've got to do this. I can get this deal done if you just do this. And they're like, you're only interested in your paycheck. You're not interested in, in whether this is a good fit. The sales guy on the one hand has to make sure that he's selling internally well enough and that he's being legitimate and true as to whether this is really a good fit to make sure that it drives the company forward. Because ultimately, today with churn and everything else, he's got to make sure that he can retain that and the business can retain that. And you as a company um, can actually deliver value to both sides with that deal. Absolutely. I think it's really important as, as a salesperson, you kind of have to feel, uh, be part owner of the company. Uh, even if you don't actually own any shares, you still have to take ownership in the company because you want the Correct. company to succeed. If you're going to take a deal that costs the company money or changes the roadmap only towards a, towards a wrong direction, it's, it's not good. So, A hundred percent. I would just add to it as well is that there's incredible upside for you as a sales guy. So if you have joined an early stage company, you want that company to grow and succeed because ultimately that's going to be your reputation and your career that grows with it. Um, and I think that's a very important piece that very often when I'm approached by young sales professionals who are starting in SDR or want to, want to grow, they're always looking at that question as, do I go to a big company or do I go to a small company? And I always say, if, you, if you're passionate and convinced about the growth of the small company that you're joining, your career opportunities there can sometimes be absolutely 10x what they would be at a big company obviously you're not going to get the same mentorship or skills or processes that are there but ultimately as that company grows the opportunity is going to be there for you yeah uh what do you say though if if they don't have the skill set you, you know you said the mentorship isn't there so how do you approach that so it's a tricky one because for me obviously i was coming from from a long sales background when i got into the startup scene i think that 
today there are enough good um, middle managers who are able to give enough of that skill set over, even at a small company. I think if we're going really small, um, it's a difficult one. And I think today as well, there are so there's so much information out there. The way that you learn, the way that you're mentored, is no longer just about your direct manager. You know, there, there's enough reading material, podcasts, people out there who are willing to be mentors. There's enough out there for you to learn and develop yourself. And if you're not going to do that development yourself anyway, the truth is, even if you go to a bigger stage company, sometimes they're growing so fast or they are so focused on their own challenges and their own growth, you're not going to get the time or necessarily the professional development anyway, unless you are really going to go to one of the big blue chips that are investing huge amounts of money in terms of staff training and everything else that goes around there. So sometimes just thinking, oh, I'll go to a middle stage company. Yes, the processes will be very, very good. I've not always seen the training to be excellent yet. I think that is starting to change and evolve, um, but it takes a lot of time, money, focus, and energy, which growth stage companies don't always have either because they're just so focused on the growth. Absolutely. I think one of the things that I look at when I'm hiring somebody uh, for my team is I always ask them what it is that the, what was the last thing you learned that was really interesting or what book are you reading? I'm looking for that kind of person that, like you said, is, is out there listening to the podcast, going out and, and self-development. I think it's, it's, it's extremely important for, for the candidate to, to show this kind of uh, 100%. Trait. And I think you also you want people that are passionate I, I mean, it's an interesting one because, again, sales, nobody grows up and goes, hey, when I grow up, I want to be a sales guy, right? Um, and, and I always ask, it's very interesting, if I go to a meetup or something like that, I always ask people, what do you tell people that you do? Do you tell them that you're in sales or do you tell them that you're in high tech? 95% of people <laughs> go, I'm in high tech. And it's, it's purely because we're embarrassed to say that we're sales guys. And I think that... And by the way, this is no different to how it was 20 years ago. And I think it's, it's a shame because I think as a profession, people, it is starting to change and evolve. But even still, I, I actually think that whole evolution of customer success and companies that are going, hey, I don't need sales guys. I just need customer success reps. I just need people who want to make my customers happy. I've got no problem with that. And I think it's an incredibly important part of what we do as, as businesses in terms of B2B sales. You want to help your customers be successful. But the second that we understand that sales guys are not shysty, slimy, dodgy, second-hand car, car sales guys, right? We're not. We're, we're enterprise software. Or we're, we're SMB software. We're, we're high-tech sales guys. The reason we're in high-tech is because not just because it pays decently, but because we have a passion about helping business. And actually what I look for, as well as that aspect of saying, hey, I'm interested in sales, I'm interested in developing myself, I'm interested in the market, is someone that's interested in business. Because ultimately the business acumen, the interest in business, if you will, is the number one thing that I look for. Because the number one thing you're actually doing as a salesperson is you're consulting on your area of expertise, right? So if let's say you are selling a billing platform, your area of expertise has to be around that billing platform. But you're in essence getting your head into that business and understanding your customer's business as well as they are. And I think this actually evolves into the different types of sales that you come across. But in essence, the holy grail, in my opinion, of sales, where you get to those sales guys that I met at Oracle that did $100 million deals, you know, I always say the guy that I saw, and it was, it was an incredible deal that happened at Oracle actually while I was still there. I'm sure it's been beaten many, many times over, but these deals are happening in all the blue chip companies where you've got a $100 million deal, 
Okay, it was a hundred million dollar deal with, uh, I think at the time it was with Vodafone. How do you get to the point where you're doing a hundred million dollar deal? You get to that point because you in essence understand the customer as well as the C-suite inside that customer. You're able to have an educated conversation with any of the executive board members of Vodafone about their pure business problems, their real challenges, how they're going to drive their business forward, and you understand how Oracle or whatever company it is that you have is going to be able to help drive that business forward and add hundreds if not billions of dollars of value ultimately to the stock price and to the company. Right? And if you can make, if, if you understand their business at that level, right, then you're actually a consultant within their business. It just happens to be your area of expertise is within Oracle or Zora or Billing or Salesforce or whatever it is because you've understood that just as well as them. And actually, in essence, you're just a consultant and you're just putting the right people in place together to make sure that you're helping the cust ultimately helping the customer. Yeah. I think that's really important. I always tell salespeople to to approach it as a as a consultant, not as a salesperson. Ask them questions. Make sure that your product is actually going to help them, not just try to push the product on them. Correct. Yeah. Make sure that you and and that helps build the credibility as well. I think, yeah. and I think it, I think it goes in. It is interesting because I think there are different types of sales that exist, and I think for early stage startups it will depend on one of two aspects in terms of where they are. So on the one hand, if they've managed to create a really nice freemium approach or they've got really good, um, you know, run rate inbound business coming in and with the way that the internet has evolved sales in general, huge amount of information is already there for them to capture. So you can have self-serve. In essence, the sales guy, oh, it's just said my internet connection is unstable, but I've got four bars. Um, okay. You can still see me and hear me though, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Sorry about that. So if you think about it, if you've got that really good um, transactional business approach going, actually maybe all that you need is an order taker, right? You're running uh, Slack. I don't think Slack has deep consultative sales guys at a transactional level for a certain price point. They're people that know exactly what they want to buy. They've come onto the website. Okay, they don't want to buy through a credit card or there's one specific problem you have to get them past or they're looking for a 10% discount or they just want to speak to someone before they buy it. You're in essence doing a transactional sale. Now, transactional sale doesn't necessarily just mean that it's a small price tag. I was doing transactional sales at Oracle because everybody knew what an Oracle database was. They knew that they needed it. They knew that they just wanted to haggle over the price a little bit and get the deal done, okay? Yeah. It's a transactional sale, and I remember very distinctly, actually, it was at a time where I was doing uh, an under-licensing deal, uh, and by the way, that's the dark side of the old enterprise license software, right? <laughs> under-licensing, okay? We used to walk into a company and go, hey, you're using more Oracle database licenses than you actually purchased, and we would threaten them with an order and we'd come up with a number and we'd do a deal in essence. So there's still a decent amount of commercial acumen and commercial ability that's needed on that, but it was under licensing deal. It was a great sales guy, very experienced sales guy who was part of the Oracle customer optimization and licensing services team. As we used to this is what gives the salespeople a bad name. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is. <laughs> Whereas we, we, we used to like to call them the audit police. But at the end of the day, it was fair. Like customers using something, they're supposed to be paying for what they're using. If they're using yeah. more and they haven't done a good enough job actually paying for what they were supposed to pay, it's, it's, it's a quid pro quo, you know. So we would walk in and, and he turned around to me at one point. We're in the middle of like a million dollar plus deal. And he turned around to me and he goes, 
Andrew, which is my, my English name, which I, I, I kind of shifted away from when I moved to Israel nine years ago. He said, this isn't real sales. Go and do some real sales somewhere. And, and I think at that time when I went to a startup and started to understand that, you know, real sales is, is really the idea of, of giving a solution and battling. Well, don't get me wrong. There were plenty of deals that I did at Oracle that were, I would call both real uh, solution sale and real consultative sale. And I just want to touch upon the difference between those two, if you'll, if you'll, uh, if you, if you'll, if you'll let me, Adam. But I think, <laughs> you know, the way I view sales is probably based on four different types of sales. Okay, you've got the transactional sale, which we talked about. And in essence, that can be going to the shop and buying a loaf of bread. I know I want bread. I know what the price is. I'll buy it next, move on, right? And those can be transactions. You can still have sales guys involved with them. You can still have commercial negotiation involved with them, but it's a transaction. There's no deep relationship or deep understanding. And I think there's overlaps between these different types of sales as well. The second one is solution. And I think solution sales is where 90% of SaaS companies today, especially startups, are operating in, in that they found the problem. 90% of the time, I think that problem is someone's still using Excel to do something. Great, let's create an online version of this, and we can get them away from using Excel. Um, you know, and, and, and that's fine. It's a problem, right? Someone has a problem. They, they're still using Excel. It doesn't integrate with the rest of their platforms. They're not using it in a proactive manner. There's a problem. Here's the solution, and it's very problem-solution orientated. Now, by the way, that problem can be can be huge and worth billions of dollars, right? Take DocuSign as an example. Okay, no one even knew it was a problem. Hey, why is this such a big problem? By the way, I remember when it was such a big problem because I was waiting at midnight on the 31st of of May at the end of a quarter for a bloody contract to be faxed through, and the fax machine didn't have paper in it. Okay, yeah. so that was a huge problem, worth billions because the guy you're waiting for at the end of the quarter to sign a contract is sitting on a beach suddenly you now have an ability to get that contract in at the end of the quarter even though the, the decision maker the, the person who needs to sign it is sitting on a beach there's document signing you're willing to pay big money for it right now again the problem is most founders most people that don't understand marketing or sales will look at it and they will say the problem is digital signature here's the problem is signature here's the solution instead of really understanding three levels back they've got to unpeel the onion so much further to understand where the value is to that solution that really no the yeah you've got to go all the way deeper with it that actually the value is being able to get your quota hit because you're not going to miss a signature you know <laughs> and depending on who you're speaking to for the cfo it could just be that he has a collection of all of the signatures easily done and sorted. For legal, it's the fact that he's, it's all organized inside his legal folder. Again, depending on who you're speaking to is where the value of that solution comes. But it's still a solution. Where you get to the $100 million mark is when you start becoming a consultant. Now, there's an overlap again, right? Solutions are an element of that consulting phase. But consultant means you're really becoming a deep business partner. You're building a, a deep consultative approach to saying how this is transformative and, uh, and can really take the other company all the way forward. The last one I would add in is relationship. And I think relationship sales, you can get a deal done where there's no, there's no problem, there's no real solution, there's no consultative. Literally, there's not even a transaction. It's hey, I really need a favor. Will you get this deal done for me? I'm telling you it's cool. You should buy it. Great. 
and you've got a relationship and you can get the deal done. Those have become rarer and rarer and rarer. When I first got into sales, one of the biggest fears I had when I moved from inside sales, which I actually started in Dublin, when I moved from inside sales to field sales, was that I had no idea how to play golf. I mean, I wasn't even good enough. I wasn't even good enough to let the clients lose. Like, that's how bad I was. Like, usually it's fine. Oh, you're not great. Fine, you let the clients win. I didn't even know how to. And, and I, I was in a team of, of, you know, career sales guys who knew how to take a contract and get it signed on the 19th hole. And, and that was how you got contracts signed very often. Now, I think, again, that evolved and that changed. And I think SAS changed that even more all over again because it wasn't long-term perpetual licenses. But there's that aspect there of saying, you know, I am um, I, I'm building a relationship. And I think that, that applies all the way through, maybe not as much as it used to, but you now need to have a real clear business case to get the deal done as well. Whether that business case is on a, on a consulting level or just on a solution level, it's still there. Let's talk about, um, you know, more about bring it back as you were an independent contributor at your first, uh, your first position uh, after an uh, early stage startup. And you went into becoming a manager. Um, Sharon gave me some, some background. <laughs> and so I'm curious on how you divided your time uh, and what did you learn there so that you could make it so no conflict of interest? Oh, it's horrible. Yeah. That first stage where you step from being, a man, being an individual contributor to a manager and you're expected to do the player manager role is absolutely horrific. Um, I've even done it on the, on the football field, and by football I mean the English version of soccer, um, <laughs> where, where you're player managing, and this was, this was at a time where I could actually still play. Um, and it's, it's, it's a real challenge because you can't really look at the game while you're playing. Um, and it becomes a very difficult challenge. I think number one is how the compensation models are built. So as long as your compensation model is built where it doesn't make a difference whether you close the deal or someone in your team closes the deal is incredibly important. The minute that there's a conflict that's built between those two, like I, I think that's horrific. Um, secondly, I would say is that you, you have to really... I, I'm not a fan of it. The player managing, I think, is really difficult. I think if your company's ready at the stage, and, and the challenge is most startups, when they get to that point of wanting to promote one of the first salespeople into a management role, they're already incredibly addicted to the revenue of that person. They also don't know whether that person is able to teach other people to sell the way they did. Um, I think you have to focus very, very clearly on selling with, and you have to sell with uh, the team that you're that you're mentoring and that you're building, um, so that they learn the nuances. And you and you, for the first time when you're doing that, you have to take a step back and understand what am I actually doing within this process that's working or not working. And as salespeople, that's always very hard because we go well. And this is this is kind of the dark art bit of sales, right? It's all intuition, and I just know how to do it. And it's not. You know there are techniques that you've learned. You know that there are things that you've learned within the process. And the second you're forced to take a step back and say, okay, at this point, what are the questions that I'm asking? How am I going through that sales process? What am I actually doing? And if you've if you've hired salespeople that are smart enough and agile enough to watch you and dissect from you what it is that you're doing in that process. So I wouldn't say you should stop selling straight away. I think you have to carry on selling, but you have to do it in a way 
that your sales guys are involved in that process and able to learn from you properly in terms of what's worked for you within selling that product. Okay, because there is usually going to be the fact that you've been the one that successfully started selling and scaling the startup, they're going to learn from you in terms of how, how you did it and how you didn't. By the way, I failed at this first time around, 100%. Okay, I hired my first hires. I was very lucky in that my first hires uh, into that sales team became incredible SDRs. Um, but I failed at... I failed with one, I succeeded with the other, and I think the biggest difference between the two was, for me personally, was how I went about that mentoring and that coaching of that person, as opposed to just letting them do it themselves and try to train them from the side, which can get very frustrating for both sides, where you're listening into calls and you're saying, say that, don't say this, go in that direction, take the conversation this way, it, it, it can be horrible for both sides. What might be better is just to actually run that call, but have the guy listen in and have them, have them shadow for as long as possible. And I know a lot of people say shadowing isn't the best way to, to scale up sales. You know, you want them to actually break their teeth. They need to learn to do it themselves. I think shadowing is okay when you definitely know how to get the deals done at the beginning. But I think you also need to make sure that you're, you're not just jumping in at the last stage of the deal to close it. Um, you're running that whole deal and letting them shadow you for the whole deal and then letting them run their own deals as well, where, where you are overseeing it, not necessarily on the call, but afterwards. There's so many great technologies out there now that enable you to coach, you know, things like Gong and Chorus and things like that, where you can actually dissect and analyze and go through those, go through those painful replays in terms of what would you have said now? What should you have said? Are you happy with what you said? And see how you could actually navigate that conversation. Again, another reason why people don't like sales guys, because we actually are trying to psychologically steer a conversation in a certain <laughs> way. But ultimately, you know, we're trying to get that win-win. And I think making sure we do that dissection and, that role, and, and, and work through those conversations with the team till they learn exactly what the nuances of selling this technology are. Yeah, I think... Um I used to call them situational re review where yep. I would, uh, I would randomly pick phone calls, uh, and randomly pick emails and, and go through them, uh, with the team and say, okay, here's, what do you guys think? What went right? What went wrong? And then I would tell them after they digest it, then I would go in as, as with my experience say, okay, well, I agree with you and here's why I disagree. Here's why. And here's something you guys missed. Yada, yada, yada. That way it really, really gets them thinking because instead of me just telling them what's wrong, they get to interact with each other and help each other out first. 100%. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so I want to take a, a, a change of direction here and sure. talk about um, what are some tips that you've learned that early stage founders can use to utilize to, to gain their first sales? So early stage founders, I think when we, when we look at it, we think about the tips that they need in terms of getting those first deals done. I would say one of the things I see when I speak to early stage founders is two aspects that they're very often doing wrong. One of them we touched upon before was this aspect of stop telling me what you do and tell me why it's interesting for me. 
not interesting for the market, not interested in the TAM, not interested in any of the things that you're talking to your investors about. And I think this is one of the challenges. So a lot of early stage startups have spent the last year or even three years thinking about the space and thinking about the problems and speaking to VCs and speaking to seed stage founders and, and trying to understand whether there's a market for this, whether there's a fit for this, how they can make it fit, what they should be prioritizing in the product, all of those pieces, which are all incredibly important in building your company, but they aren't going to get you a deal. And having that conversation with your first potential customers compared to VCs or investors or even compared to those people you've spoken to where you were like, hey, you're a pro you, you head up e-commerce in this company. I'm thinking of doing something in this space. Can you give me an hour talking it through with them, telling them what you're thinking of making is a completely different conversation to, hey, I want you to buy this. Now, yeah. obviously, your conversation isn't going to be, hey, I want you to buy this. <laughs> and the problem is it's very similar to that conversation of, hey, tell me about your biggest problems. I'm about to solve them for you, right? The sales tell me about your biggest problems is not the same conversation. It's a conversation that you know needs to lead in a specific direction. Now, you have to be open enough and agile enough to go, tell me about your business problems and your personal problems and your career aspirations and everything else that you're trying to work in. At the same time, you have to do a whole bunch of discovery that we know from a sales standpoint, right? <laughs> but we know we've learned from a sales standpoint all those discovery questions we need to ask, like budget, authority, needs, timing, you know, all of the stuff that all the great salesy type discovery pieces that we do because we're trying to sniff if there's a deal here or not. Founders aren't used to necessarily doing that because the discovery that they've been doing isn't about whether there's a deal here or not. It's about how big is this problem for this guy and should I be prioritizing this as something that I want to make? Now we have to understand all of those sales discovery questions that they need to learn. And we need to narrow in on the pain points that we know exist because we've already done all of our homework and we've created a product in this area. Now let's, let's unpeel the onion again. Let's get into those problem areas. Let's understand the impact of those problem areas. And now comes the real piece, which I think most people miss, which is that needs payoff and value piece, right? which is being able to turn around and go, if I can fix this problem, how much is that worth to you? What does that mean for your business? What does that mean for your department? What does that mean for your career? And that piece isn't something they've been doing either in the investor standpoint or in the pre-product discovery standpoint, but in the sales standpoint is a, is a key clink, is a key coin that has to drop and having that conversation. And by the way, the other thing that they're obviously not used to either is asking for the money. And asking for the close, <laughs> right? I mean, they, they're used to it from an investor standpoint, but in an investor in investor standpoint, it's a marriage. This isn't a marriage. This is uh, I'm not, I'm not quite sure the right way to put it. I'm I'm, I'm not going to get <laughs> but it's uh, you know, it's it's in between. It, it, <laughs> you can do it over and over again, and you need yeah. to do it over and over again. It needs to be replicable and scalable, and I think that's something which uh, which founders are, are learning how to do and I think I think it's changing I think people are understanding that sales is, is is both an art and a science and they have to get both of those pieces right in terms of taking it forward yeah all right uh, besides this aspect what are some of the other biggest mistakes that you're seeing uh, these earlier stage companies do that needs to be um, corrected in terms of mistakes 
uh, hiring abroad too quickly. Yeah. There's a great book I like. I'm trying to remember the name now. I completely forgotten the name, but it's it's about disruptive sales in essence, and uh, and it and it goes through that aspect of you know you got you just got your your great VC check written off. It's time to scale. You're ready to scale up your sales team. You bring them all into head office. Let's say you're a ten man startup. You hire two guys out in the field in America. You bring them over to Tel Aviv. You throw them into two weeks worth of Neo and training, and everyone's up and everyone's great and everything's great. And you send them off. To, to their home office, wherever it is, and they're hammering the doors and nothing's happening. And they're just going to get despondent. And you're going to get frustrated and they're going to get frustrated. And, and it just falls apart from there. Um, you know, there is a value in the iterative process in those early stage sales. You know, being able to, be, keeping the enthusiasm and keeping the agility and figuring out together how to overcome you know, what I find with very often with, with early stage sales um, as well is that the founders, and it's really important, and I know loads has been written on this in terms of the distortion complex, right? So the founders are like, you're like, oh, my God, this is going to be such a headache for privacy. The customers are telling me they don't want to send us their data and this, that, and the other. And, and the founders are going, that's not a big deal. You know, especially Israeli founders, right? They're going, yeah. yeah, it's not the deal. I don't understand, right? And, and you're like, yeah, but the customer thinks it is. Whether, whether it is or it isn't is irrelevant to the customer's perception of it, right? And that, that communication that has to happen, that internal sale I was talking about before, is incredibly important at the early stages. Now, I'm not saying every deal is like this. I'm not saying every startup's like this. But yeah. being able to overcome those early stage issues and the other thing is just to keep the energy. You know, when you talk about, I, I actually really like, there's, a, there's an author called Daniel Pink, who wrote a great book called Drive, all right? Yeah. He's awesome. Um, Drive is all about motivational theory. He wrote another book, which is one of my favorite sales books, because it, it's not really a traditional sales methodology type book. It's called To Sell as Human, okay? It's a great, it's a great book. Awesome book, and he redefines the ABC of sales. And I think, by the way, this is the really hard bit I think that people have with sales today, which is we still enjoy the old school sales of, you know, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, um, you <laughs> always know, be ABC, closing. always be closing, <laughs> third prizes, you're fired, you know, you want to run. And you, you want that energy and you want that aggressiveness and you want people that want to hunt and get sales done. And you have to combine that with the modern approach of, of ABC, which is Daniel Pink, where he redefines ABC as attunement, buoyancy, and clarity. What I found really interesting about it, though, is, 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 is the buoyancy. I mean, attunement, he's saying, you have to be aligned to the customer. You have to put yourself in the same position as them. You have to have the credibility. You have to be aligned. So you have to go, hey, I, you know, I understand exactly what you're going through. I know, I know how difficult it is. You have to build the empathy. You have to actually be aligned. And, and the last one, clarity, is also very obvious, right? You as a sales guy are supposed to make things more simple as opposed to more complicated, right? If you're overly complicating the process even more, you're not doing your job. Your job is to make it more simple. And today they know so much information from the internet. There's only a couple of pieces that are missing out. Your job is to fill in those last pieces and, get, and, and help them over the line, if you will. Middle one, I found the most interesting one because the middle one is buoyancy, right? And he says, and, and he's defining it, buoyancy is you have to keep that passion. 
right? You have to keep the fire burning. You have to keep going because there is a huge amount of rejection in sales. There's a huge amount of people that don't want to speak to you. There's a huge amount of people that will ghost you. You know, everyone talks about ghosting today as something new. Hey, I've been in sales for 15 years. Ghosting isn't you, okay? Yeah. <laughs> you know, ghosting went on for a long time, um, you know, before millennials, um, especially in the sales process. So that buoyancy is incredibly important. Right. And the, the ability to keep that passion and keep that energy, if you're on your own in an office in the middle of nowhere, a home office is, is much more difficult than when you're surrounded by the founders and the founding team who have that passion and have that energy and have that distortion complex. That's going to keep you going. It's going to keep you going for a long time. And I think the other thing is you also as an early stage salesperson or even as an early stage founder, don't ignore those little things. I'll never forget. I was towards the end of my first year selling at Clicktel and I was like just below target. I mean, they sent me very aggressive targets, but first I was just, and I had this one deal and I was like, I had it right. And it was in, but it wasn't signed yet. And I got it signed on the last day and I drove to the former CEO who was in Kfar and I was in Ranana, and I like drove to him to get it signed. Right. And he was like looking at me like, what the hell difference does it make if it signs today or if it signs in three days? Like, there was no end of quarter. Like, but for me, it was like, no, this is the end of the year. It's the end of the quarter. Like, let's let's do this properly, you know? Yeah. And it and it's that that energy that the the founders, you know, that even smaller stage companies should definitely keep those goals and keep those things going, and treat themselves like real sales organizations. I think it's incredibly important. Incredibly important, but very hard. Setting setting targets you don't know what, what where they should be. <laughs> it is it is difficult. It is difficult. Which which I think which I think as early stage founders, what I would say is if you found the right sales guys, if you found the right sales guy even, um, and you see that that it's coming, there's a pipeline building and things like that. But you've just completely underestimated how long the sales process is or things like that. I think you do need to show some level of flexibility. Yeah. Um, I don't think you need to like disregard the targets or forget it or just overpay them or whatever it is. But I think you need to show some empathy towards them that you understand they're building that journey with you, whether that comes in giving them a little bit of extra stock grant or something like that to make, to make them feel that, that they're valued, even though they didn't hit the targets you assigned. Um, because targets, you know, there's hit and miss on that as well, right? When you're early stage, you don't know what the targets should be. So you might have set them too low. Um, and if you're early coming into that, happy days, you're going to make a lot of money. Um, I think the challenge with that is targets always change the year after. And I would say <laughs> there's, there's the two sides to that. As an early stage, as an early stage salesperson, right, you've got a choice as to whether you kind of hand the founders in early and go, let's put a full year target. Or you say, listen, guys, we don't know what the targets should be. Let's only set it for six months and then be realistic based on that. Great. Avi, I uh, really appreciate your time today. Uh, is there a way for people to reach out to you? 100%. So um, my email is A-W-I-E-S for sugar Y at gmail.com. More than happy for people to reach out to me. Very happy to meet. As I said, the consulting element is what I love about sales as well. So I'm more than happy to learn about new companies, new businesses, new sales challenges they're having. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn, uh, Avi brackets Andrew Wiesenberg. Uh, it's W-I-E-S-E-N-B-R-G. And, um, you know, add me on LinkedIn, but give me a reason as to why you're adding me. 
Um, <laughs> uh, otherwise, otherwise, I will ignore the, the connection. Um, but yeah, more than happy to uh, to speak with people and help people. Um, you know, really, I, I've I've I'm incredibly grateful for the overall community, and I and I think in all, as we said, you know, sales as a profession. Um, ha people are still trying to figure out and understand what it is that makes this a a proper profession and I think that's starting to change and it's starting to evolve and I think the more we can do that the more we can encourage that even early stage startups and founders and, and SaaS in general to help people understand that this isn't just a dark art isn't just a closed box where Oh, oh my god either you've got it or you don't it's a skill set that can be learned it's techniques that can be learned it's methodologies that can be learned and you need some raw talent as well but you can take that raw talent and hone it and develop it and learn it as well absolutely avi thank you pleasure thanks for listening to startup sales with adam springer Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Contact Adam about speaking engagements or consulting services at adam at startupsales.io. Great, Avi. Let's finish things off with the final five. Excellent. What is, what is your favorite sales or leadership book? I mentioned To Sell is Human. Um, I, I think it's a great sales book i i think it approaches sales from a non-sales standpoint and says listen everything that everybody does every conversation we have is is sales focused uh and i think it's everyone should read it not just sales guys absolutely daniel pink all right is there somebody that you follow uh or read online for sales and leadership ideas I, I love I love Saster and Jason Lemkin. Um, even his tweets, I think, are, are awesome. I think there's so much to learn in terms of the fact that he still, in terms of SaaS leaders, respects sales as a profession and as a uh, as an industry. And I think he understands that sales needs to be done properly in order for high tech to succeed. And, and for that reason, I think he's one of my favorite people that I follow. Um, yeah, Sasta, and the podcasts as well are great. Okay, terrific. Are you available 24-7, or do you have strict time time boundaries? 24-6, 24-6. I don't roll on Shabbos. I don't roll on Shabbos. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's definitely a challenge. Me and my wife both work in high-tech startups, and we have four kids, including a newborn. So there, it, there are challenges to it. You are always on. Um, I think I think you have to be somewhat responsive. I think I'm becoming better at prioritizing replies. So it's a case of replying saying, I will get to this at a certain point, rather than actually sitting down and dealing with it straight away. Um, but uh, but, but it, we are in an always-on environment. And also really understanding what's urgent and what's not urgent. <laughs> I think that's the biggest thing. Everybody will want to take your time and about nine. 90% of it's not really uh, important. You could wait Correct. a week and it will still be the same. What is your favorite tool used for sales? Mm, it's a good question. I would want to say Gong, just to give my wife's company a shout out. Um, but, I <laughs> but I haven't actually used it yet. Um, I'm looking forward to using it. And I've heard great things about it. Um, I think as a salesperson, I mean, one of the other great things is, is the company that I'm starting at soon, Lucia 
which I have used, which is amazing, which is contact information. At the end of the day, nothing beats a phone call. No, email nuance gets lost in email. Um, you know, there is nothing better than picking up the phone. I remember specifically, and I think even those phone conversations have to a certain extent replaced the face-to-face -face meetings, which I, you know, the, there is, I, I would say the greatest tool that you have is a conversation at the end of the day, right? Yeah. And I, I remember distinctly, I was a, I was a young upstart, cocky, inside sales rep at Oracle yeah. in Dublin. And I sat down with a guy called Gavin Dimmock, who was in the leadership. They set up all the leadership, came over to Dublin, and I got to have a one-on-one -on -one meeting. Gavin is now, uh, I think he's the GM of uh, EMEA for Marketo. And I'll never forget, Gavin turned around to me with, with a heavy hangover um, after a night out in Dublin and turned around <laughs> to me in bed. And he said, your job is to get as many meetings as possible. When you get to being a proper sales guy, you walk your churches, which is the fancy English shoes, up and down the city of London, and you just do meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting. And you should be able to hit 10 meetings in a day, coffee, meeting, presentation, lunch, whatever it is, right? Because those conversations, if you're having them correctly and you're listening correctly, and you're, you're using them to understand, both build those relationships, build the consulting, understand the problems, unpeel the onion, those are what are going to drive you to results, right? Those conversations. And I don't think that's changed today. I still think that's true. You still see the top performing sales guys are the ones that have full calendars, back-to-back -back meetings. Yeah, you have to do the follow-up. You have to do the hard work. You have to do all the other pieces with it. You have to use all the other tools around it. But ultimately, the conversations are what drive results. So, Lucia. <laughs> To, to wrap it around, Lucia, get, get the numbers. I'm so just working on my sales numbers. pitch now. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Last question is, what one piece of advice do you have for all the founders and sales leaders out there? One piece of advice? Um, that's a difficult one. Don't be afraid of salespeople. You know, I think... As you think... I, yeah, we're, we're just not. And it's, it's really interesting because I think there are, there are elements of the character traits that make successful salespeople. And by the way, it's not everyone. I've seen, I've seen really introverted salespeople that are incredibly successful, right? And, and generally, we have this perception of salespeople as being a little bit shysty, a little bit only interested in their own success and their own money, a little bit, you know, too out there, too noisy, too aggressive, you know, all, all of those bad characteristics and bad character traits. And I think the second that we we unbox that and we say this isn't dark magic, this isn't just aggressive people, there is a skill to this, it's a profession, it's people that actually can create real win-wins. I think that is going to help the entire startup ecosystem succeed more. Um, you know, by being able to take sales to the next level of maturity, and I think that will take us forward. Are you introverted or or not? I am not. <laughs> but then again, my extrovertness might just be a shield for my own uh, internal introverted. Yeah. I'm definitely an introvert. Uh, I could I could stay all day in my at my house and not talk to anybody. I'd be happy. <laughs> it's it's really. I mean, there's a great book called Quiet and a great TED lecture by the person that wrote it. I can't remember the name, um, but you know, it, it says that actually, you know, the most successful people are a mixture of both. But introverts do get 
a difficult rep, uh, especially in sales. And it's just not necessarily, it's not necessarily fair either. But I think, you know, just because someone is aggressive in terms of the targets and the revenue and, and the buoyancy and the passion overspills sometimes, you do need that energy to just keep smiling and dialing and picking up the phone and keep going when, when sometimes they go and get stuff, which it will do. Absolutely. Great. Avi, thanks again. Adam, thank you. Cheers.